Yo, Falsetto, what's your favorite line and scene from this slick flick pick? There's a scene in Robert De Niro and Edward Burns starring as the main co-leads in the 2001 fantastic thriller film 15 Minutes, where you have the main antagonist, Emil Slovak. And part of these great lines, about half of it is what's on the page or on the script. And the other half, in equal F-stars measure, is how that line of dialogue is delivered. And a lot of the best lines in cinematic history are actually ad-libbed. For example, in Armageddon, Bruce Willis ad-libbed when he said, The United States government just asked you to save the world. Anybody want to say no? I don't know if this line was ad-libbed or not, but how it was delivered by Emil still resonates with your worthwhile cinephile. So Emil Slovak, I love America. No one is responsible for what they do. That is actually tied with this other dialogue that I absolutely love, which is Robert De Niro as Detective Eddie Fleming talking to Jordan Warsaw, played by the great Edward Burns, who you probably recognize as Ryben from Saving Private Ryan. Sometimes you can try too hard. Sometimes you have to go away in order to come back. Kind of like you did with that shot today? That's right. As far as some contender lines of dialogue, you think I came to America to work? If we pulled up to a burning building, I'd gladly let you go first. And lastly, again, it's Emil. I'm Emil. I'm insane. Are you my lawyer? I love it. My favorite scene is when at this dilapidated warehouse, Jordan Warsaw, aka Jordy, holds Emil at gunpoint. There's a lot of intensity here, and one of the few times you actually feel like you're outside of the claustrophobia of New York City. I like all that happened the five minutes up to this scene where he abducts Emil, and I love how he does not kill him. You think that on the receiving end of Jordy Warsaw's gun, the arson investigator, that he's going to shoot Emil for all the shiz that he has pulled throughout the first half of this film. He just killed, even though it sounds funny to say, Robert De Niro, who is the quasi-in-spirit partner of Edward Burns in this flick. Not only are they not in the same precinct, but they're not even in the same occupation. Robert De Niro is like this almost retired cop. Jordy Warsaw is a freaking arson investigator. But you know what? We don't care about that. And I don't care about that. They're partners. They're brothers. They're both civil servants. I buy it. I buy that Jordy wants revenge on this piece of shit that just killed his partner and is trying to profit off of that murder. So I love this scene, and it feels different than the remainder of the scenes in the film. I can't exactly articulate why, but it's just more of like this gritty atmosphere that takes you away from everything that you've seen deep in the heart of the big rotten apple. Before we cinematically, theatrically swan dive, into this sterling, stirring introduction, allow me to first gift an indelible shout out to Hair Monster 88. Thank you, Hair Monster 88. Now that's all connected Hair followed by Monster and the numbers 88. So Hair Monster 88 on Instagram. Not only did Haley, aka Hair Monster 88, keep my chemo hawk mohawk looking clean, 
Dapper, and F-Star's Pristine. They're at Wavelength's Salon on 9th Street in Durham, North Carolina for a shit ton of months. But she's also a fan of Kimowak Sessions and offered some very supportive words on my review of Constantine, my premiere episode of Slick Flick Pick. Thank you, Haley, for your warm words and support. If you are in need of a new look and want to feel like a new man or woman, head on down to Wavelength Salon or check out HairMonster88 on Instagram, as one of her many talents is, in fact, hair coloring. Enjoy, Cinematic Fanatics! Greetings, Cinematic Fanatics! This sounds like deja vu, in a way. Allow me the inflaming, flammable, still smoldering, apartment fire, and provocative social commentary, rich pleasure, of satirizing the criminal media within the charred smoking remains of a tenement and the big rotten apple, via another titillating slick flick pick, an entertaining slick flick explaining series, a desirable diversion from the main vein of Chemohawk Sessions. You are my cinematic fanatic. I, your worthwhile fucking cinephile, for your 15th episode, I offer a burning, bold, blazing, satirical, crime-action-thriller flick that was a critically mixed bagger, but financially fared with a tad more swagger, that expertly incorporates a film within its own film's film, with a vast spectrum of offerings. Through eight segments of 15 minutes, this is a two-hour film with 10 hours of provocative ideas. A detective-slash-arson-detective camaraderie piece, a slick portrayal of a trifecta of social motifs, the American criminal justice system, the addictive and decadent properties of the bleeding, leading media, the pros of celebrity for both professionals and cons, and a solid, reliable fucking thriller flick in its own slick pick right. The irony is not lost on me that Edward, last name Burns, plays a burn victim advocate who fights all that ignites and the ensuing collateral damage that burns. I do not know who is a tougher F-Star's New York tough guy, but Eddie Fleming is as slick as Emil is sly. This is De Niro's film, On the Hunt, Such a Thrill, but when his own blood does spill, he simply stares down his captor, spits in his face, and goes out with a bombastic bang, not a slow, lumbering pace. I offer you, regarding this satirical, crime-glorifying, but also decrying action thriller, this Eddie Fleming dunking his drunkard head into a tub of ice, that chewed half-cigar, serving his prop and vice. His fame lasts but fifteen ticks of the big hand, but comes at a lifetime price. And of Daphne's kaleidoscope sapphire eyes, Jordy sure wants a slice. Eddie drinks from the top shelf among a top shelf cast. Fifteen minutes, circa March 2001. Don't underestimate Eddie. Though he fancies a drink, the arson burns guy 
he will still outthink. With his cigar smoke rich lungs, he's still the fastest Main Street sprinter in their whole precinct. Fuck with him at your own peril, for you will wind up dead or in the clink. In honor of the slick flick pick unveiling, I describe, through smooth detailing, this flick slickness unfailing, the city's older yet spry hero dying, but his quasi-partner crying, no longer to the laws complying, and street justice supplying, rife with quick-witted, satirical dialogue regaling. This is a slick, cinematic experience that touches a quartet of genres. Satire, crime, action, thriller. It transitions so seamlessly between genres and off simultaneously in such a way that you process it as a simple study in filmmaking sleekness. I have adored this film since my first blockbuster rental viewing, but repeated viewings of this flick fuel an appreciation still brewing. Recline, cinematic fanatics, in your favorite well-worn stale chair. Rustle up some popcorn, fresh as fuck, the antithesis to that stale-ass chair I just mentioned. Zoom in and zone out as I unwind the daily grind with a slick fucking flick pick. Fifteen minutes is the flick, so very slick, hence my F-stars pick. When slick flick pick is near, stick around, till falsetto prophet's voice you hear. Lights, camera, uh, 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 action, lens distraction, and with the right slick flick pick, grant satisfaction. I am your worthwhile cinephile. You're my cinematic fanatics. Together, we excitement unlock and run down the real world's 15 minutes worth imaginative F-Star's clock while feasting our eyes on this slick flick pick prize. Enter with me, you cinematic fanatics, into the realm of film's fantasy as we unwind the grind of reality. I offer you pick 15. Get it? 15 minutes? Pick 15? Now, I don't accomplish that every slick flick pick, but I certainly do for this slick flick pick. Dark crime lit by lime light. The downward spiral of viral. 15 minutes, 2001. Today, we'll discuss how to let a blue-eyed, distressing damsel witness shower without crossing the line, how a killer breaks off the knife's tip into his quarry's spine, and how, in the Manual of Arson Investigators, the rule against holding a suspect at gunpoint in a dilapidated warehouse is but a mere guideline. Your worthwhile cinephile, Falsetto Prophet. For the oral record, know, and please remember, that these are slick flick picks, not always and necessarily unflawed consummate picks. I did not take the broadcasting position that all of these slick flick picks are perfect. The P rather stands for pick, not perfect or perfection. Now that said, some of these flicks, by my own standards and scoring methods, do in fact constitute a perfect fucking film. Constantine is one example. Now that's already aired, but another, LA Confidential, is another perfect film that has yet to be aired. Oh, but it will. I just say that because sometimes people may see Slick Flick Pick, and the connection they make is that that's somehow synonymous with perfection, 
Like, that's why you pick this film. I think it's an important distinction to bifurcate the films that, from a technical standpoint, are flawless, but those are in a different basket than films that are not necessarily technically unflawed, but they are really enjoyable to watch, and we no doubt enjoy watching them. Some films, if you're really lucky, happen to contain both categories in the aggregate. LA Confidential is one of these examples. But for 15 minutes, I admit that it's not a perfect film, but I very much enjoy it, enough for it to make not only the list, but for it to fall on the same numeric 15 as the film is called 15 Minutes. I do not make those selections lightly. As far as the title, there's a little bit of backstory here. So for 15 minutes, in the movie The Insider by Michael Mann, there's a great quote from Christopher Plummer who plays Mike Wallace. No, that's fame. Fame has a 15-minute half-life. Infamy lasts a little longer. In the long list of contender titles that I was thinking up for this Slick Flick pick, one of the titles that I almost picked was Taking Lives for Half-Life, but that would have been confusing. And then, of course, we have Being in the Limelight, and these are dark crimes perpetrated just to be on air and to have these criminals' acts forever etched into society's memory. And they're trying to make basically their own snuff films. And that's why it's dark crime lit by limelight. And then, of course, you're familiar with this relatively contemporary concept of going viral, which, of course, in 2001, things were not really going viral on the Internet to the extent that they are today. But it's still with tabloid journalism and tabloid television. I would say that things were still going viral, but I call it the downward spiral of viral, because if something's going viral, it is occupying far too many people's attention when they should be driving or walking through a landmine field, paying attention where they're going. So it is a downward spiral. It's very addicting. And this film, one of the reasons why I love it is because it's a bold film that has a lot of tantalizing messages to relay about our attention spans, what leads in the media the decadence and the corruption that is omnipresent and that is stifling to a lot of the media personalities. And I thought it told the story in a very creative way while also mirroring your traditional crime action thriller that you've come to expect. Now, what is the definition of half-life? The time required for half of something to undergo a process or a period of usefulness or popularity preceding decline or obsolescence. Now, of course, that's a slang term. But for purposes of taglines, this film's tagline is America likes to watch. Well, I crafted my own tagline, which is bleeding, leading blood on his white watch. Or like Kelsey Grammer says throughout this film, hard to believe, watch. I would say hard to clean blood off of that watch because Robert De Niro has this great watch and he gets blood all over it, and his girlfriend, who he sadly is not able to propose to because of what will ultimately befall him, I thought that that scene also has the word watch. So this works, right? Watch, watch. Never, never you mind that 15 Minutes is a 2001 American satirical buddy cop action thriller film. Now that's a goddamn mouthful. Directed and written by John Hersfeld and starring Robert De Niro, one of my all-time favorite actors, and Edward Burns, who most notably had the role of Ryben in Saving Private Ryan, and he was amazing in that film. 
When he gives the nod to Matt Damon, when they are on the eve of utter annihilation, as the German troops are forming in mass and about to roll through the town of Rommel, Edwards' head nod to Matt Damon says so much. Not only is it a bro code guy nod, but it is my favorite scene of the entire film when Edward Burns in Save a Private Ryan gives the, okay, we accept you, or okay, we understand now why you're the mission to Private Ryan. So I always love seeing Edward Burns. He also is a director, and he is involved in many different aspects of film. And he can be funny, and he can be dramatic, and I really like him. But the story revolves around a homicide detective, De Niro, and a fire marshal, or arson investigator, played by Burns, who join forces to apprehend a pair of Eastern European murderers who videotape their crimes in order to become rich and famous. Now, the title, 15 Minutes, is a reference to Andy Warhol's quotation, In the future, everyone will be world famous for 15 minutes. Oh, how true that is proving to be through the advent and the prevalence of social goddamn media. Now, this director, he has not directed a lot of projects that I'm familiar with, but he did direct Two Days in the Valley which is a very interesting Los Angeles noir film, and it's very strange. I will mention Two Days in the Valley a little later for a reason that you may or may not see coming. Ah, like the Scream TV series, you'll never see it coming. But there's a supporting cast of Kelsey Grammer and Avery Brooks and a handful of cameos that are way too juicy for me to unveil and reveal right at this current moment. This was distributed by New Line Cinema. Now, you know New Line Cinema. New Line Cinema made such films as Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the movie Seven, and A Nightmare on Elm Street. This is exactly 120 minutes, a cool two hours, or in keeping in line with the title, eight blocks of 15-minute segments. And as far as the budget and box office performance, eh, budget 42 million, box office 56 million. But if you throw in the advertising for such a bold, clever, creative feature, I would say that that probably broke even, but it's hard to know exactly. Now, the film was shot on location in New York City and Los Angeles. It was originally slated to be released by New Line Cinema in 2000, but for reasons unknown, the film was pulled from that schedule and then delayed until 2021. This is one of those films that was prior to 9-11, so it shows New York as a shit ton of it is filmed in New York. So watching it always takes me back to that year. It's very bizarre and it's very uncanny to watch a film filmed in New York the same year, but before that horrendous event. So seeing New York in its former glory, it's just weird going back because I don't see this movie every year, but I have seen it at least eight or nine times, as you would expect from a slick flick pick. But yeah, that's just kind of an interesting tidbit that you know you don't always think about. Trivialized Trivia, or TT. Yes, I give it to you at the beginning so that I can get to the really, really cool, creative, reflective shit a little bit later. Charlize Theron, you know, that female actress that speaks Afrikaans? She appeared for free as a thank you to John Hersfeld, the director, for giving her her breakthrough role in Two Days in the Valley, which I just mentioned. And of course, that film was 1996. The scene in the bathroom where Robbie De Niro dunks his head in a sink full of ice, is a real trick that police detectives use to get over hangovers. De Niro discovered the trick during his research for the role, 
and it was eventually written in. Now that's really cool. I've never tried that trick, but I wonder if it works for cops and it works for Robert De Niro pretending to be a cop, maybe there is some validity to it. The language spoken by Charlize Theron is Afrikaans, one of the official languages of South Africa. She says, hello, Mr. Botha, can I call you back? You would never believe who just walked in here. It's Eddie Fleming. Thank you. Goodbye. Botha was a famous boxer in the 1990s from South Africa. Charlize was born in South Africa and speaks fluent. You guessed it. Afrikaans with two A's. Well, two A's consecutive, because obviously that word begins with A. So it is a triple A threat. Edward Burns gained 20 pounds of muscle to accurately play an arson investigator, as they would have to spend at least seven years in the fire service and would gain muscle mass across their backs, chests, and arms. Similar to that, Edward Norton gained 30 pounds of muscle, or so they claim, for his blistering, brilliant performance in American History X. Robert De Niro, the badass that he is, ran the foot chase scene himself, without a stunt double, in sweltering 100 degrees Fahrenheit summer heat in New York. Wow. The tension between Emil and Oleg is based on the real tension between some Czechs and Russians. Many Czechs hate the Russian language, as they were forced to learn Russian under Soviet occupation. Ah, very interesting tidbit on prior world affairs. Karl Rodin refused to speak Russian to Oleg during rehearsals. I was definitely picking up the palpable tension present in their dialogue together. And to bring it all full circle, Edward Burns plays the role of an arson investigator, which his co-star, Robbie De Niro, played in Backdraft in 1991. Now, do I prefer Robert De Niro's role as a fire investigator more so than Edward Burns? Yes. But that does not take away from Jordan Warsaw's portrayal of a fire investigator in this slick flick pick. Keep in mind, you cinematic fanatics, that I love film. I don't know if I would have the patience to be a director, but I no doubt have a vision. When I'm watching these films and these sequences and these tirelessly spectacular acting sequences and moments and these warm dialogues that unfold before me, I can see where the director went right, where it was a perfect harmonized collection of cinematic moments, and I can see where things fell flat. So I should be like an advisor on these flicks. But instead, I'm putting together these slick flick pick analyses for your enjoyment. I just really love flicks, and I can only imagine that you are able to extrapolate how much I love these as I provide these discussions, as I provide these manifestos of the awe-inspiring nature of some of these slick flick picks. And some of them are just semi-mindless entertainment. Other times, I react to them in an emotional way. This is one of those films where I actually feel a gamut of emotion, because on the one hand, there's quite a bit of humor in this film. And it's not just like cop buddy humor. There's an intellectually stimulating undercurrent that recurrently pops up throughout this film. It makes you think. It makes you think about who are we as a society? Where are we headed? Now, if this was tabloid journalism, and this was over 20 years ago, where do you think things stack up to now with something going viral and the downward spiral implications of that? How much stock do we put in the media? How truthful do we believe them to be? And can you really blame two immigrants 
who come to America because they truly believe that the American justice system and how it's tied to the media is so corrupt and it's so backwards that they could successfully capitalize on the marketplace of violence and short attention spans that we have here? No, I don't think that you can. And this film is not uncomfortable asking uncomfortable questions. And I love that. Now, I will admit that if you were to remove De Niro and Burns and put in two like total B-list actors that I never had seen before or had any viewings of, I don't know if it would have held up because a big part of what drives this crazy plot along is the dynamic, undeniable chemistry between the two leads. But I love this flick. I definitely watched this flick when I was going through chemo. I do not have a framed poster of 15 minutes, but that's mostly because one, there is a limit no matter how high of ceilings that you have and no matter how vertically impressive the wall space, I don't really like the poster. It's not one of those very intricate, elaborate posters. It's very straightforward. So the poster just never really grabbed me by the balls, but I do like it. 15 minutes. This was my first Infinifilm experience. What is Infinifilm? Well, I can tell you it was relatively short-lived, but I remember it, and I'll tell you why. Infinifilm, which was first introduced in 2001. So this actually could have been one of the first films via the Infinifilm experience, but it was on DVD, and it was New Line Cinema's brand of specialized DVDs containing a feature to notify viewers of special features on the disc while you watch the flick, such as interviews, behind-the-scenes footage, or deleted scenes. If the user chose to watch one of these special features, the movie would be paused and the special feature would then be played in real time. After that, the user would be returned to the point in the movie where they left off. And the last Infinifilm DVD release was actually the number 23 in 2007. And then New Line likely abandoned Infinifilm because of the absorption by Warner Brothers in 2008. I did not even think about that until rewatching this slick flick for this cinematic review that I'm giving you. Yeah, it's a cool feature. I wish they still did that. Of course, I know that even DVDs, the tangible, grippable material that you can also use as a coaster or a frisbee, I know those are going the way of the dodo dinosaur as well. I really wish that they still had that feature on DVDs. And honestly, maybe it's been replaced with some sort of reasonable facsimile, but I'm just not sure. Now, we start off and we're in customs at the airport. Okay, this is hilarious. One, it's an interesting time to see airports personified pre-9-11, but also you get these two yokels who you just immediately feel weird. They have a weird presence on the screen. They make you feel like you really shouldn't be watching them. It's just two guys that are like an old bickering married couple, and you can just tell that there's something off about both of them, just like this customs guy detects. But in the end, it's a movie, and they have to be granted entrance, because that's how America is, right? Come all, but of course, enter at your own peril, because in this flick, things are going to take a variety of sinister and unexpected turns. They're asked, are you related? <laughs> and then the one guy says, yes, he's my friend. And right off the bat, you just know that their quirkiness is going to be a continual theme. They are just idiots. And then one guy's like, you're Czech, and then you're a Russian national. How do you know each other? Well, this one guy, the... Russian national, he wants to be Frank Capra. His one life ambition is to be a movie director, and that is what he is going to achieve come 15 minutes or high water. The tabloids I learned from the Infinifilm behind the scenes 
the tabloid television really started in the 80s. So I think that after 20 years of it existing, this film really capitalizes on where it would go next. And I listened to a podcast on this film, and these critics were saying that, well, if they made this movie about four or five years later than 2001, they would have likely had even more interesting stories to tell with the relationship between the cast and how the media was portrayed. I think this film came at a perfect time. And I even remember watching it, you know, in 2001, and I felt like it was making great salient points that were extremely applicable even then. Now you see Kelsey Grammer. Now Kelsey Grammer is always great. He is a presence and he's memorable and he's got great comedic timing. But here he plays a very interesting, sleazy newscaster who is willing to go to any extent to get his 15 minutes of fame and to generate more viewing and more viewership. Oh, man, Kim Cattrall. She is still hot. So she's she, of course, was big in Sex in the City. And it's nice to get a little cameo of her attractive self here. I don't have a lot of familiarity with her, but man, she's a good looking lady. And it's funny because I looked up some of her information on IMBD, and these were the points that were brought up. She has a seductive, deep voice, often plays sexually aware women, often works with director Bob Clark, and she has a mole below her lips. <laughs> that is priceless. And then, of course, I learned from the Infinifilm that one-third of shows on the news in the year 2000 were about crime. Remember, if it bleeds, it leads, as Kelsey Grammer will remind us. But if it bleeds on Robert De Niro's watch, good luck getting that blood out of his watch. Wow. That was the level of depravity and extent that I will go to try to secure a rhyme. I will even use the same word twice. Watch out for that. Sandra, his boss, wants to broaden the format. She says it like five times and it's hilarious. Now we get to see De Niro's cure for drunkenness, which, as you learn from the TT or the trivialized trivia, apparently actually works and cops actually employ use of this technique. I like seeing him in the bathroom, staring at his own reflection in the mirror. Obviously, it's reminiscent of Taxi Driver. But what really came to mind in this scene, other than the fact that it was a really cool fucking bathroom, is it reminded me of Godfather. Because you got him in the bathroom, he's wearing a blazer, you got this dude that's like a glorified bathroom attendant, but it's also like his partner or something. He reminds me of the Don's consigliere, and that's actually Paul Herman, who he is a mafioso, kind of. He's always in these films like Copland and a shit ton of other films, where he usually plays some like mafia guy or henchman or someone that is of the family. So I think it's hilarious the throwback that I'm getting to a young Vito Corleone in a bathroom. In the back, we can see these framed news clippings where it says Hitler invades France, Roosevelt landslide. I thought that was cool, a, a cool little addition. It makes me feel like it's an actual bar, like an actual on-set location, both with the bathroom itself and what you'll see later when they're actually inside the bar at Eddie's wake. Now we see Avery Brooks as his official partner, and Avery Brooks is awesome. Now, I haven't seen him in much, but he did make an indelible impression upon me for his performance in American History X. So always good to see you, Avery, and you have a smart-looking suit. Now, Emil really enjoys smoking these fucking cigarettes. Every time you see him on screen, he's smoking, he's huffing and puffing, he's going to blow down the little pig's fucking domicile, but this guy really loves his cigarettes. It makes me really want to smoke these cigarettes based on how much he's enjoying them. And of course, as this will be a recurring theme, Emil and Oleg constantly look like a bickering couple, and it's actually hysterical. It's definitely dark humor, 
but it works. Now, Oleg, I recognize from the film Predators, which make no mistake, Predators, plural with an S, will in fact be one of my future Slick Flick picks. Oh, and by the way, for episode 20, for those of you that are paying attention to the chronology here, I will be doing Predators 2 with, you guessed it, Wham Bam Cam. We did Predator together, we're going to do Predators 2 together, and we are going to be able to do a compare-contrast to a film that ultimately becomes part of a saga, but that'll be the first film that I will be doing that is a comparison to a prior film in the run of those kinds of films. So I'm excited about that. Oleg has been in this country for like a day, and he's already a thief. He steals a $2,200 camera. Now, a $2,200 camera in today's market is expensive, but in 2001, holy shitballs. Also, Kelsey Grammer's name is Robert fucking Hawkins. That is a treasure to me, because Robert Hawkins is the same character, name-wise, as Lenny James's character in Jericho, that show Jericho that came out roughly in 2009. I absolutely love Robert Hawkins as he's portrayed in Jericho. And so to see that that's his name here brings back a slew of spectacular memories. And then you have this, I think he's like a Rastafarian in this alleyway, but he really wants Eddie's autograph. The film does a good job of maintaining consistency. So this Eddie Fleming guy, played by Robert De Niro, he's supposed to be a local celebrity. He's like this hot shit detective that goes on these ride-alongs that are filmed for these tabloid journalists. And he's great. So this Rastafarian wants his signature. And they keep that theme consistent throughout the remainder of the film. It's not like it's something that's mentioned and then immediately dropped subsequently. And then, of course, Robert De Niro says, I hope this fucker don't run because my knees are killing me. I love this guy. I think every scene we see him in, he's either drinking alcohol or he is recovering from too much alcohol or he is just straight up hungover. But I love that his alcoholism does not in any way detract from his detecting skills. I also love <laughs> how Avery pushes the ladder and completely knocks this fleeing suspect on his ass in the alleyway. I love how he just runs out of the back of this restaurant or whatever, pushes the ladder, the guy falls off from like 10 feet up and lands in a pile of trash. I always laugh at that, and I for sure laugh this time. That's what you call teamwork. That is an efficient crew that they have running, these detectives that are trying to clean up these rotten apple, big apple streets. Emil is trying to collect their share from the bank job, which I can only assume was back in Czechoslovakia, but who knows? He's already crazy. Like, give me my money. He's crazy. He has really great tics, and his gesticulations and his body language is just perfectly slimy. It's perfectly sinister. And you never truly know what the fuck Emil is going to do next. You have some really great villains in cinematic history. You've got the Hans Grubers of the world, played by Alan Rickman, who was a polished thief, and he was menacing, but there was a method to his maniacal madness. But then you get this whole new set of villains, like Gary Oldman in The Professional, similar to Emil, where you just never know what the fuck he's going to do. But you know that it's not going to be good, and it's definitely, probably, newsworthy. And then one of my favorite lines, he says, You think I came to America to work? Emil is from Running Scared. I recognize him from Running Scared. And he's in a shiz ton of other films, but that's Karel Rodin, and he's a Czech in real life. And he was also in Blade 2. He was in The Born Supremacy. He's a solid actor, but I really like him in this. He does a good psycho. Ooh, we see a co-star 
Vera Farmiga as a Russian hairstylist or hair washer, as she explains. Now, she was always very attractive, and her blue eyes are no less piercing and captivating in this slick flick pic. Now, Vera has been in a shit ton of films. She was in Up in the Air. She was great in that. She was in Safe House. She was in The Departed. The list goes on and on. She was in the Conjuring movies. She also has a daughter, Tessa Farmiga, who has found some success in some television and also in film. Also, I just remembered that Vera Farmiga is Norman Bates' mother in Norman Bates, the television show. So she's always a welcome face, and she's no less welcome here. Oh, she escapes down the fire escape, eh, but she left her passport, and what do these crooks learn? She's illegal. She had a six-month visa, and she's been in the country for two years. Question, how common do you think that is? How common do you think it is for people's visas to expire, but they remain in-country for years, if not decades? I have a feeling that it's probably more common than not, but I don't exactly work for immigration and customs enforcement, so I have no fucking clue. Love Ed Burns' intro. I love the way that he's shown. It's nighttime. It looks like Central Park or some shit. His car is overheated, and he gets a call on his freaking pager. I never actually had a pager, but I was definitely alive when pagers were in existence. We learn a lot of things really quick. One, he can handle himself. Two, he can disarm a suspect who's holding a switchblade on him. He's an arson investigator, and he has no problem cuffing this park urchin, aka David Allen Greer, who comes at him with a switchblade, and he cuffs him to a tree because he gets a call for an active fire. Behind the scenes on this Infinifilm, Mike Ayala, which I believe is an investigative reporter or something, but he spoke on a lot of these behind-the-scenes scenes, and he has this snippet on arrest where he says that technically, from a legal perspective, Jordy Warsaw did not do anything wrong when he cuffed this guy to the tree because he got an active fire call and he had exercised a legal arrest. Now, does that potentially get into issues of civil rights violations? Most definitely. But from a legal perspective, he did not commit any sort of criminal act by handcuffing a suspect to the tree to then run along to his fire as that was an emergency situation. Also, I think it's funny that David Allen Greer is complaining while he's handcuffed to the tree. Some sick fuck will come by and stab me. Okay, that's ironic as you are the one, sir, wielding a fucking switchblade. I love the cigar on the crime scene. I love how Robert De Niro was just standing there smoking, thus contaminating Jordy Warsaw's fire scene. But I love the view of New York from the city light. I love that there's no roof, so you get to see these stars because of the damage from this fire. And what do you know? We have evidence of a homicide. The fire was caused to try to throw the law off their scent. Jordan Warsaw is a cool customer. And we find out that Eddie Fleming knew that it was homicide all along. You can't fool Eddie, guys, because he's been there and he has absolutely done that. Oh, and then Eddie throws a little wink to the camerawoman, Hottie, who at this time you think, oh, he's just flirtatious. But you find out that's actually his girlfriend. Well done, Eddie. She is gorgeous. We see a girl in the crowd. I recognize her as Vera Farmiga, but she is a fucking ghost. Jordan Warsaw sees her and then boom, she vanishes. This makes you wonder, is she even a real person? I guess this is not one of those spiritual, horror, outside of your body, disembodied, dispossessed films. This is more of a straightforward action thriller. So unfortunately, no. My hopes of this film also incorporating supernatural elements are dashed. Now we get full circle because the guy that Jordy left handcuffed to a tree, he is now naked and he said that a bag lady took his shit. <laughs> Well, that's what you get for pulling knives on arson investigators. Emil is 
perfect at being jittery. He will be jittery this entire film. So when I say he's a good actor, it's not just how he delivers his lines, like, I love America, nobody is responsible for what they do, but it's also all of his gesticulations, all of his micro body movements, it all plays a factor in the overall acting package, and I think he does a great job. Also, I think it's interesting that Oleg, who could break Emil's face with two fingers, fears him. Emil is definitely the one calling the shots, or so he thinks. I also like watching Emil think out loud. He kind of whispers under his breath as he's trying to learn things. Obviously, English is not his first language in this film, so he's constantly trying to figure things out as he's watching different conversations on TV and trying to figure out the little nuances to the American language. It is also about image, says the fire chief. If we look better, we can get more authorization for overtime. So this fire chief is concerned about how these fire investigators look in the public spotlight, which also is just a small stream feeding into the larger tributary of how the media is impacting every member of this film staff. Then we learn a little bit about, on the Infinifilm side, Son of Sam. This movie brings up the question of, okay, if you commit a crime and you're found guilty of this crime, are you allowed to profit off of any books that you write or any documentaries that you partake in after the fact? Well, they had to pass the Son of Sam law that if you do raise money, that money cannot go to you if you are trying to profit off of your own crime, but that money will in fact go to a victim's fund. That was something interesting. I think I vaguely remember hearing that before, but this was more articulately spelled out here. Now we get a prostitute that pays these boys a booty call, and her name is Honey, and she's very pretty, and she has a nice voice. So I'm thinking that this is like a tip-top call girl service. Who the fuck knows? And then he says, I don't want sex, I just want the address. This guy is obsessed with finding this Daphne woman, i.e. the girl who got away. Now we have a murder on film, but they've already murdered on film, but so just add this to their running list of international crimes. It's fucked up, and it reminds me of the film 8mm, which is all about snuff films. While this movie has a lot of comedic elements, when they get down to the violence, and they get down to the disturbing content, I find it to be effectively disturbing. I love the skyscraper shot at dawn when Robert De Niro has a talk with Jordan Warsaw. And of course, De Niro makes himself a screwdriver, and we learn that Jordy doesn't watch TV, which is funny because by the end of this film, we will see Jordy watching TV at least once as he's watching the news. And then of course, Robert De Niro says, that's the prettiest suspect I've had in a while. And then we learned that Jordy's parents were from Poland, so that's how he was able to identify that the way these bodies were left, that were killed by a mill, they were positioned in a sexual way to profane the bodies. So that's interesting. I like how Robert De Niro says, oh, bring this. And he's like, why? Well, it's the matching set to the murder weapon. Okay, that's clever, Eddie, as it was a kitchen knife that was used to kill the couple closer to the beginning of the film. Oh, shit, we get a cameo. This is Richie Coster, a very young Richie Coster, and he's great. He usually plays the villain. He was absolutely mesmerizing in Black Hat, directed by Michael Mann. He also has a role of a dirty politician in season two of True Detective. I always liked seeing him, and he was a welcome addition here as like a street newspaper magazine vendor guy. Oh, we get another cameo. Eddie Winslow. Darius McRae, who played Eddie Winslow in Family Matters. He is a cop here. If you add up all of his screen time in this film, it's got to be less than five minutes. But it's always good to see you, Eddie Winslow. And then I love how Robert De Niro's like, all right, see you around. And he's like about to drive off. 
But Jordy Warsaw really wants to learn more about what's going on and see things through the eyes of Robert De Niro. But then Robert De Niro was just fucking with them. And he's like, all right, come on, get in the car. And then he drives away before Jordy can put his hand on the handle. And it's hilarious. It's your garden variety cop buddy moment. But I love it. I think it's well done here. And it still makes me laugh. Then we learn about his two-headed coin trick. Very clever, Eddie Fleming. They should change his name to Eddie Fleecing, as he outsmarts a lot of fucks in this film. Then we get the cameo from Charlize Theron. And she, of course, was mentioned in the TT, but she is in this film for about two minutes, and she's always good to see. Now you've got these guys, De Niro and Burns, yelling in their cell phones as they're driving through the mean streets of New York, and I love it. Now, this is when a fire meets a New York cop with a hero complex desire, and an apartment will soon be a pyre. Oh, I love that rhyme scheme, and that's all me. And then, of course, De Niro asks if Edward Burns wants a sip, and he says, I'm on duty, and he's like, so am I. He takes this swig, of course, while he's driving through the streets of New York. So it's hilarious on so many levels. And again, the alcoholism that he seems to be a proponent of he no longer he does not suffer any ailments throughout this film, and the alcohol does not in any way get in the way of his performing his job and getting shit done. Now Ludwig, who is the owner of Ludwig's, this hair salon, that is Balthazar from Supernatural. That's Sebastian Roque, or Sebastian Roque. I believe he's a French actor, so I don't know how to pronounce that. Roche. It's probably Sebastian Roche. There you have it. Now these guys were on this hellbit mission to get Daphne. And then they just let her live after they track her down. That's interesting. And then I like how Robert De Niro, to get Edward Burns to run along, he just says, I think I smell smoke across the street. <laughs> and then, of course, it's a moment where they, let's box in these killers and, you know, chase them through New York or New York City or Manhattan, whatever the fuck. But that reminds me of in the International, when Clive Owen is with two other guys and they do an ABC boxing to box in this suspect. And it's a very good foot chase. Again, Robert De Niro was actually sprinting down the streets. Oh shit, poor Avery Brooks. Man, you're, not only does Avery Brooks get hit in the face with a wine bottle repeatedly, but his weapon is stolen and Jordy Warsaw's arson investigator partner is shot. So a lot of pandemonium occurs in less than two minutes and it's crazy and I love it. But then to cap off this stressful situation, we get this awesome distance shot from Robert De Niro's pistol. I see that you remember your heat training as Neil McCauley, bro. De Niro nails a mill in his ankle, even though they ultimately elude the authorities and evade the authorities. We learn about the justifiable homicide backstory, where Daphne shot a man who was raping her sister back in Europe, but he was a cop. So she's in hot fucking water, and that's why she came to America, where she has been for two years. And then, of course, De Niro reminds Edward Burns, She's the only warm body we got left. And then these two idiots again, they're talking about silence of the sheeps. These guys are so stupid, but I love it. Ah, we get a sweet scene of Robert De Niro trying to learn Greek so that he can propose to his Greek girlfriend, Nicolette. And then he says, good luck in Greek. And then his concierge, the same guy that helped him when he was trying to cure his hangover in that restaurant bathroom, he says, good luck in English. And then of course, Robert De Niro saves Jordy's ass. I'm ready to be briefed. Are you ready to brief me? I love it. I love that Robert De Niro can be in a film where he brings 100% everything that he has to the surface, such as in the film Taxi Driver or Raging Bull or Godfather Part 2. But even in movies like this that are lower budget and that never reach that level of acclaim, Robert De Niro, even when he's on coasting mode, 
is still a fucking presence, and he's still a phenomenal actor. Robert De Niro is such a good actor that even when he's in material that's unworthy of him, or even when he's having to deliver stale lines of dialogue, he always fucking nails it. I love Robert De Niro. I believe in my cinematic, fanatic, worthwhile cinephile heart of fucking hearts that Robert De Niro is the greatest actor that's ever lived. Now, that's tough because every 20 years, we get a new powerful collection of thespians, but God, Robert De Niro is just so fucking amazing. And I love him in this movie, and I'm really sad that he dies. But then you get this great speech where he's talking to Jordan Warsaw, and he gives him the death speech, talking about how he used to have this puppy that was always pissing on the carpet, but he kept it anyway. And then he reminds Jordy, the whole fucking world watches television. Then we get this great song by David Gray called Sail Away. Sail away with me, baby. I love that song. And so it's perfect placement of the song in the film as it's now nighttime and Robert De Niro is alone in his apartment and he is preparing for Nicolette's arrival. Sail away with me. What will be, will be. Okay, sorry, but I just had to get that David Gray out of me. Eddie has a great bar at his apartment. This is a pretty lavish apartment because he's no doubt not just a detective, but he's a detective slash celebrity, so it fits. And then, of course, we see a newspaper behind him that's framed that has him on the cover saying, Hero Cop makes another bust. I love that. If I was that successful, I would no doubt have framed pictures of myself. It kind of reminds me of that TV show Bosch, where you got Bosch and one of the reasons that he was able to afford this massive home on a hill in Los Angeles is because they took his story and turned it into a movie called The Black Echo. He has a framed picture of The Black Echo, which is based on his life. So I would definitely do some shit like that if I was a celebrity. You know why? Because I would be proud of my accomplishments, and I would want to air them. We get this creepy-ass moment, something straight out of Scream, where he hears a knock on the door, he goes to investigate, he's so sure that it's his girlfriend, almost fiancé Nicolette, but it's not. It's this pizza guy who's looking for the Cassiope household. As soon as he gets back in his apartment, bam, he gets hit in the face with a frying pan or some shit, and now he wakes up, taped to a chair, and you have Emil and Oleg there, ready to make their own fucking snuff film. Now, I love the dialogue that happens here. I love that Emil explains his whole plan, how he's not really crazy, but he's going to pretend to be crazy so that he can get away with this crime, and then he can tell the people at the psychiatric institute that he's not really crazy, he did it all intentionally to avoid jail. And of course, Robert De Niro's like, you think a jury is going to buy that bullshit? Well, then Robert De Niro gets popped in the face a couple times, pistol whip style. But this is tabloid television at its finest. And this is another example in the plot where not only is it a very unexpected sequence of events, but you've got this great running commentary on the sensationalized media and how problematic and corrupting it can be. He tells them about his double jeopardy law plan, how he can't be tried for the same crime twice in our country. Then I learned from the Infinifilm experience that as far as that goes, juries and judges do not like the insanity defense in America. It fails the vast majority of the time. The figure that I heard was 99.9%. And when it does work in those very seldom instances, it's because the jury and or the prosecutor wanted to find the party not guilty anyway, and then they just hang it on the mantle of the insanity excuse. So I thought that was interesting. I believe Andrea Yates she tried to plead the insanity case, and it did not work, and she was found guilty. 
which is crazy because you think, okay, this woman murders her own children. Who but an insane person would do that? Well, she probably is insane, but the judges and the juries, I guess they just view it as a cop-out or something. I'm not sure. But I think it's very interesting that the insanity case almost always fails to be successful. And then I think it's interesting for you gun nuts out there, when a mill loads the gun, it's totally unnecessary because a bullet shoots out the side, which means that the gun was already racked. So I think that's interesting, but I think it's just another instance of his buffoonery. He clearly doesn't know what the fuck he's doing, but he is clever and he is sly. I have to give him that. And then he wants to do a pillow trick on Robert De Niro. He wants to shoot him through a pillow mafia style, which is interesting because if you've ever watched the great film, analyze this, Robert De Niro shoots a pillow to relieve his stress as he claims is the advice of his therapist, Billy Crystal. Pillow shooting coming all around again. Guess what? Robert De Niro is not having it. He puts up a final stand. He kicks a lot of ass. He uses the fucking chair that he's taped to as a weapon against these two assailants. He starts wildly firing his pistol in the apartment. It's a very suspenseful scene, and I love it. I just hate how it ends, where Robert De Niro gets stabbed, again, scream style, right in the gut, and then he dies, and it's all captured on film. And I didn't think about this, but I just heard on this podcast, this guy was talking about the tremendous acting chops of Robert De Niro and how it's very subtle, but it is in fact shown in this scene. And the scene that he's talking about is when Robert De Niro comes to, and he's taped to this chair, he's acting a certain way. Like he's stoic, and it's obvious that he knows that he's about to be killed. But what's fascinating is, as soon as Robert De Niro realizes that this is going to be filmed, he wants to go out in the eyes of the media looking like a hero. So his comportment shifts ever so slightly, and he ends up making this grand last stand. And because of that, I think this podcaster was right. This is really phenomenal acting, and if you're not paying attention, you just might miss it. But like Kelsey Grammer says constantly throughout this flick, it's hard to believe, but you're going to have to watch Cinematic Fanatics. Now, these killers live in gross hotels throughout this entire film. It's disgusting, some of these places where they take up space. We get to see these killers rigging Daphne's apartment with some flammables, which will of course be important later. On the Infinifilm behind the scenes, they talk about how the moment that journalists and news organizations started paying for information for these big stories that they considered newsworthy, no matter how taboo they were, this created a real rift as far as it undermining news anchors and news quality and accountability. And I think that makes a lot of sense. And I cannot believe how viperous and soulless a lot of these news companies appear to be. A film where that is also shown exquisitely well is in the film Nightcrawlers with Jake fucking Gyllenhaal. Now we learn that Daphne is now INS's problem, so she's going to have to go back to her home country and face the music for shooting a cop, even though that cop was assaulting her sister. We have some great songs throughout this film. I really like the soundtrack. We get these money-making songs, and of course, Kelsey Grammer. You could just call Kelsey Grammer the initials instead of KG. He's a killer's goldmine. Kelsey Grammer is a piece of shit. I cannot believe the levels of depravity that he stoops to throughout this film. He claims that Robert De Niro is his friend, and then he immediately walks out of Robert De Niro's wake to profit on this snuff video killing of Robert De Niro to be filmed on the local news. Are you fucking kidding me? Oh, and there is some great chemistry. So we already had good chemistry. Like we had 
B plus chemistry between Robert De Niro and Edward Burns, but the fiery, flammable chemistry between Jordy Warsaw and Daphne is A fucking plus. Holy shit, these two make a hot couple. And then we get this awesome fire, which is another throwback to backdraft. Instead of backdraft throwbacks, how about throw backdraft, all one word. Oh, I'm able to impress even myself at the ripe old age of 30 fucking eight. It is an awesome fire. This is the second mention of backdraft because again, Robert De Niro played a great arson investigator in backdraft, but we've got Jordy using his tips and tricks of the trade to try to keep these two alive. And this is some hell of a nefarious job that Emil took the time to rig this apartment with some crazy traps and tricks along the way. So now it's almost become like a disaster film while they're trying to get out of this fire, swirling, flame lapping apartment. And we see Eddie's badge on a nail on the nailed shut window. Holy shit. Meanwhile, these two firebugs are just across the street on a roof watching all of this mayhem unfold. Well done, Jordan, because not only did you save the day, but you brought out a kid who was trapped in a nearby apartment. Now, it is going to be Jordan Warsaw's show for the rest of the film. So Robert De Niro was in this film a little over an hour, and now Edward Burns has to take the reins, and I think he does a fine job of it. This is no longer Robert De Niro's film, but he did provide the accelerant, if you will, or the catalyst for Jordan Warsaw to pick up the reins and take us from here. And then, of course, there's an exchange of the tape where the cops are desperately trying to get the tape back before it airs because they don't want Eddie's violent murder being televised. And then this, you know, soulless news crew says, if you want the tape, there it is. And then it's shown and you get to see the shock and horror upon all the countenances of all the New York denizens as they watch their beloved hero get stabbed to death. I see that Emil bought a new suit with his million dollar cash money that he got in a briefcase. And it's a very nice restaurant that these two yokels are hanging out in. And of course, the crowd is shocked and silenced. One of the behind the scenes discussions was talking about how if that actually happened, if a beloved hero cop was killed and they aired the footage, he said there would be rioting in the streets. And I got to tell you, I have lived through quite a few riots that occurred in America while I have been alive. And I saw riots in the 90s. Nowadays, I feel like there's a riot every 30 days. So I don't think that this gentleman was wrong in his riot predicted analysis. I say that that night vision option on that camera really did come in handy for Robert De Niro's murder because Robert De Niro had the foresight to try to knock out that lamp, which he did. And then we get a Sylvester Stallone figurine damaged as a patron is thrown through the glass by the very muscle-bound Oleg. I wonder if it's Planet Hollywood. I don't know where that, what that restaurant is. I wonder. And then I love this dialogue where he's like, I'm a meal. I'm insane. Are you my lawyer? And then, of course, the great line delivered by Avery Brooks to Jordy Warsaw. All right, kid, you had your 15 minutes. There goes Jay Warsaw. I love the abandoned warehouse scene. He holds a mill at gunpoint. I thought he was going to fucking kill him. I thought he was going to kill him. Edward Burns looked pissed off. I haven't seen him that pissed off since a 1998 Saving Private Ryan, where he really wants to execute the German POW. But holy shit, this was intense. It brings new merits to the concept of intensity, and I love it. And then, you know, Family Matters, Mr. Winslow over here is trying to contain the situation and defuse it. Well, Edward Burns fires off a fucking round and says, now go! Holy damn, that scared me. Now, he puts Eddie's gun in the pants of a mill, and he's trying to bait a mill to pull the gun so he can kill him in more or less justifiable circumstances. 
but it doesn't work, and Emil does not take the bait, and Emil lives to see another day. Well, Emil's slime bag attorney has procured fan mail from women that have already written to Emil. Do you think that's crazy? It's not. Look what happened with the O.J. Simpson case. It's the same kind of thing. And then he says, be thinking about three things, Emil. Paranoia, fear, and delusion. And he says, I am all of those. I'm very paranoid and fearful and deluded. It's hilarious. This mugger that was trying to rob Jordan Warsaw at knife point is on the news talking about how his money was taken by Jordan Warsaw. And I'm like, damn, really, Mr. Switchblade? Well, because of this and other recent transgressions, Jordan Warsaw is placed on like administrative leave with no pay, I will add. I love that Edward Burns throws the phone out the fucking window. It's hilarious. He throws it with such force, and who knows how many levels it drops, probably hit a guy on the head that was walking on the street corner that contributed a shit ton of money to the, the New York Fire Department. Who knows? But then we get this great song, Fame, written by David Bowie and performed by God Lives Underwater. Fame! It's a great song and I love it. And then Jordy Warsaw gives a head nod to both Avery and Eddie Winslow while he's giving him this head nod, which is cool. That's what most guys do when they enter a bar and they're trying to get the attention of the bartender or something. But he's casually shifting his backup weapon in his pants so that he can have it readily available. And then, also one of my favorite lines of the film, not because of the words, but how the words are delivered, it's a very pissed off Jordy Warsaw. And he says, what the fuck are you looking at, you piece of shit? I love the delivery of this. My boy Gigi, who I used to work with at Starbucks, he also loved this film. And he and I were definitely of a similar ilk on the worthwhile cinephile level. We were absolutely cinephiles in every sense of the word. But he loved that scene. What the fuck are you looking at, you piece of shit? Because Edward Burns delivers it so perfectly. And he takes De Niro's advice. So Robert De Niro, his essence lives on in Edward Burns. Because he steps away and then comes back to shoot Emil to death. And it's fucking awesome. Jordy Warsaw is handling his business. And then we get this Frank Capra fake death scene, and it's hilarious. So Oleg ends up trying to redeem himself. He kind of fucks over Emil, gives some footage to Kelsey Grammer. Remember, Kelsey Grammer's initials, KG, stands for Killer's Goldmine, as he likes to hand over a million dollars to guys that killed his best friend. But hey, it's just a very interesting movie that is such a medley of different genres all mingled together, and I really like it. And then, of course, after... Jordy Warsaw unloads the clip on Emil's chest, killing him instantly. He's told, good job, by a local cop. <laughs> he's committed so many infractions, if not downright crimes, and he's he just walks away. And, it's, and the cops not only let him go, but they roll out red carpet for his departure. It's fucking awesome. So ha 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 to assault. I love it. You go, Jordy Warsaw. But hey, can you blame the cop? Because all these cops love Eddie Fleming. And he just killed Eddie Fleming's murderer. That, you cinematic fanatics, is 15 minutes of fucking vengeance. And I love it. Now for the reviews. Eh, didn't do very well. Rotten Tomatoes gave an approval of about 32%, and that's based on a shitload of reviews. As critical as it is about sensationalism in the media, 15 minutes itself indulges in lurid violence, and its satire is too heavy-handed to be effective. You know, reading that, it actually makes an indisputable amount of sense in a way. I don't know. I just think that what this movie does, this is something that I hold a lot of stock in. I am so fucking tired of these garden variety 
cottage industry cookie cutter films where whether it's a Marvel movie or whether it's your straightforward cop buddy camaraderie film, which they've made a thousand of. I prefer films that have a unique spin where they have an interesting flavor, where they have an exotic spice to them. And this film, while it does cross off a lot of boxes of, well, yes, this is similar, and yes, this is formulaic, and yes, you've seen this a thousand times before, it also blends in some unique character. You've got this underlying message of sensationalism in the media, kind of like the film Nightcrawlers. But you've also got a film that you don't have two cops. You've got a cop and you've got an arson investigator. And it throws some ridiculously insane curveballs, like when Robert De Niro gets killed about halfway through the film. This movie does have vanilla subject matter at times, but it spices it the fuck up with Nestle's crunch pieces and gummy bears and goddamn sprinkles. This other review, as long as it's cops versus scum, 15 minutes bangs along pretty spectacularly. The contrived script gets Brooks out of the picture fast, so that De Niro and Burns can have a nice male bonding moment or two. Well, I like that. Now, that was from Stephen Hunter of the Washington Post. Now we get to Ebert. And of course, Ebert is the reviewer that I put the most amount of, shall we say, gasoline jars in stock, because he takes the time to give the film a full critical analysis. He gave it three out of four stars, which I have perused enough Ebert reviews to say, that is a solid fucking review. And he says, 15 Minutes is a cynical, savage satire about violence, the media, and depravity. It doesn't have the polish Natural Born Killers or the wit of Wag the Dog, but it's a real movie, rough edges and all, and not another link from the Sausage Factory. I totally fucking agree. Although, of course, the two leads are two sausages. Just kidding. No, but they are. They're two dudes. The movie, written and directed by John Hersfeld, is the work of a man intoxicated by characters and locations. His previous feature, Two Days in the Valley, was the same way, filled with characters who spin into each other and bounced apart like pinballs. His movie may overachieve, may weary sometimes as it hurries between plot lines. I prefer this kind of energy and ambition to a plotting exercise and action cliches. Hersfeld has something he wants to say. Yes, exactly. This film adds additional dimensions, which makes it far more intriguing than your standard action fare. I totally agree. Now, Emil and Oleg are perfectly amoral idiots. They shoot, slash, burn, and pillage their way through Manhattan. Meanwhile, Edward Burns, as the fire inspector, finds evidence that a fire was set to conceal a murder, and De Niro engages in a little jockeying for position in the media spotlight because he wants credit for the investigation. Now, Emil and Oleg are really the center of the movie. They reminded Ebert of Dick Smith and Perry Hickok from In Cold Blood. Very interesting connection there. I know Red Devil had read In Cold Blood, the novel, by Truman Capote, but I know that in In Cold Blood, that's where you've got the great Robert Blake, who would have an interesting personal life story in and of himself. And then, of course, Ebert would go on to say, The movie is far from unflawed. I have a private theory that half the time you see a character tied to a chair, the screenwriter ran out of ideas. And he says that some of the getaways are unlikely, and that the ending is on autopilot. Well, I can't disagree with that. But there's an absolutely sensational scene where Burns tries to help a woman escape from a burning apartment, and he says it's the best work along these lines since Backdraft. 
and poignant personal moments for De Niro that keep his character from simply being a publicity hound. And then, of course, he goes on to say at the end, Some movies, however good, seem to be simply technical exercises. Others, even if flawed, contain the seed of inspiration. John Hersfeld has not made a great movie yet, but he might. While you're watching the movie, you question details and excesses. Afterward, you admire it for the passion of its attack and the worthiness of its target. I can tell you when I saw this flick, the first three times, I just enjoy the camaraderie between Burns and De Niro. I like the on-scene filming in New York. I like some of the sensational action sequences, and I thought it was clever. But watching it now, years later, I can tell you that I appreciate it on new levels, and I think it still holds up. I don't think it has become, even though the technology actually used in the film is dated, to me it does not feel like a stale movie. It still feels lively, vibrant, and life. I like it. I like it a lot. Some flicks are slick due to their profound, penetrating substance. Other picks are slick on account of their technique, both smooth and tactile, gratifying guile and stupefying style. I admit that 15 fucking minutes is the latter, but when Eddie dies, I grow sadder, and mirroring Ed Burns swiftly matter. I enjoy this film, how it makes me think, laugh, and feel, which is a shit ton to extract from an inanimate film reel. I love Ed Burns, also De Niro. When the policeman celebrity falls, the fireman ascends the ladder into a two-headed quarter past hero. I remain always your fellow fiend for films, your worthwhile cinephile, and you are my cinematic fanatics. Keep that popcorn fresh, or at least edible, for my next slick fucking pick. Pick 16, slick flick pick. Save the witness who talks less. Via violence, they'll silence. 16 blocks, 2006. Falsetto, profit, out.